Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. So to reduce costs, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. Over 70,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash gps. netsuite.com slash gps. This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria. Donald John Trump is hereby acquitted of the charges. Today on the show, a big week in American politics. The mess in Iowa. Chaos in Iowa. No results in yet. Something must be going on. President's acquittal. Did nothing wrong. His reality show, State of the Union, and more. I'll talk about it all with that wry observer of everything political and politically incorrect, Bill Maher. Also last week, President Trump announced his Middle East peace plan with no Palestinian participation. This Tuesday, Palestinian Authority President Abbas will give his side of the story to the UN Security Council. I will get it first from the PA's chief negotiator, Saeb Arakan. And the crisis over the coronavirus in China. We will show you the extraordinary efforts to contain it. And finally, the world's youngest prime minister. Sanna Marin was sworn in recently as Finland's prime minister at the age of 34. Her top ministers are majority female, many of them about the same age as Marin. Does that matter? I ask her. But first, here's my take. After the debacle of the Iowa caucuses, the old quip attributed to Will Rogers seems just right. I'm not a member of any organized political party, he's supposed to have said. I'm a Democrat. Actually, that broad-based Democratic coalition used to be one of the party's strengths, encompassing Southern segregationists, working-class union members, and Northern liberals. Today's coalition is much less ideologically diverse, but the central challenge remains to bring it together and energize voters. The most worrying news out of Iowa for Democrats is that the voter turnout was far below that of 2008, when Barack Obama brought people out in record numbers. The 2020 turnout looks a lot like 2016, not a year to emulate. Many Democrats have pinned their hopes for energy and enthusiasm on opposition to Donald Trump to galvanize the party. Iowa suggests that that negative energy is not going to be enough. Pete Buttigieg has pointed out, every time Democrats have succeeded in the last 50 years, it's been with a new generation figure who's not been marinating in Washington for a long time, Every time we've tried to go with the kind of safe, established, been here for a long time kind of figure, we have come up short. It's a reasonable conclusion. Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton, and Obama all won. Hubert Humphrey, McGovern, Mondale, Gore, Kerry, and Hillary Clinton lost. Dukakis, by the way, was an outsider who lost, suggesting that it is a necessary but not sufficient condition. The pattern also speaks to something distinctive about the party. As the saying goes, Democrats fall in love, Republicans fall in line. The Republican Party remains a somewhat disciplined group of people focused on winning. Consider 2016, when almost all the candidates running against Trump believed, in Lindsey Graham's words, 
that if Trump were the nominee, he would, quote, destroy the party, unquote. But once Trump was nominated, the party got squarely behind him, and today he enjoys a 94% approval rating among Republicans. Democrats, however, do need to fall in love. They need someone to energize them, to come out in droves. And that person has to feel like a transformative figure, someone who represents a new generation or a new way of thinking. The problem with Buttigieg's argument is not that he's wrong about the history, but that his own candidacy, while remarkable and refreshing, seems to mostly inspire older, whiter Democrats rather than younger and more diverse ones. The person most attractive to young Democrats remains Bernie Sanders. And the problem with Bernie Sanders is obvious. The country is not nearly as left-wing as he is. It's easy to get seduced by the idea that he represents a new wave, that young people are more open to his ideas, that we're entering a new world in which far-left ideas once considered unthinkable are now part of mainstream conversation. That same argument was made by Jeremy Corbyn and his supporters in the last British elections. And the party suffered its worst electoral defeat since 1935. And it's not just in Britain. Anna Zalbray notes, across Western European countries, social democratic parties have gone from an average of well over a third of the vote in the mid-90s to about a fifth in recent years. Those who've succeeded in this environment have tended to be politicians who feel fresh, authentic, and who can appeal to the center. France's Macron, Canada's Trudeau, Greece's Mitsotakis. The Democrats need a candidate who can energize the party's voters and bring together its left and centrist wings. And the evidence suggests no one has been able to do that yet. For more, go to cnn.com slash Fareed and read my Washington Post column this week. And let's get started. Let's get right to my interview with Bill Maher. On his TV shows, first politically incorrect and now real time, Maher has displayed a singular ability to analyze American politics with great humor and great intelligence. We sat down on the Los Angeles set of Real Time, which airs on HBO on Friday nights at 10 o'clock Eastern and Pacific. HBO and CNN are, of course, both owned by Warner Media. Bill Maher, pleasure to have you on. Great always to be with you. So uh, what do you think of this week for Donald Trump? I thought it was his best week ever and the most depressing week for me as someone who's not a fan of Donald Trump and <clears throat> what he's doing to this country. I, I was chilling. The, you know, I knew when he did the State of the Union address and he stuck to the prompter, which I was very surprised. But we've seen that before. Telepopter, teleprompter Trump and then teletubby Trump is coming soon because... You know, I always say this man has a disease, malignant narcissistic personality disorder. It's a real thing. He could not help himself from doing that. It was going to come out. Whoever convinced him on Tuesday to stick to the prompter was very good because that's hard for him. He had 100 off ramps where he could have done what he usually does. There was no looking at the prompter and then going so true, like, you know, he'd never seen it before, which he probably doesn't usually see it. Um, But then Thursday was just horrible with these veiled threats, you know, Comey, we're going to see what happens, people are in jail, that language. And, and why do you think he never pays any price for that? Because it, the worst thing that could possibly have happened, that we all feared and talked about, has happened. He's normalized. Anything you see enough becomes normal. 
you don't notice it. So he's in a great position. The bad is baked into the cake. His fans either love it because it's trolling or it's just him. And lots of other people are like, yeah, I know that's him. But, you know, we all know crazy people in our life and some of them function, some of them are in our family. And you just sort of accept that. And every time he's just this horrible jerk, I think a lot of people go, yeah, but that's part and parcel to be this strong leader and he's getting things done. And if you didn't know the facts and you watched that State of the Union, it was very effective. And, and the showmanship, you know, that pulled out every stop with the medals and the Marine being reunited. I mean, that's what he does. And it's going to be hard to beat. I, I, if this is a superhero movie, <laughs> my favorite kind, uh, this is the moment when Superman is on the ground. You know, the kryptonite has weakened him, and I don't know how we get to the end of the movie. I know when a superhero movie happens, because they always win, but this is life. I don't know how we get from here this week to that place November 3rd where he's defeated and leaves, which, of course, I don't think he's going to do. And, and how do you cover somebody who's been normalized like that? Because surely mm. part of the humor, you need people to feel outraged. Yeah. Well, you, I mean, it's not hard to <clears throat> point out the myriad flaws he has and the crazy things he does, and it's, it's still fodder for comedy. Um, I'm not worried about the comedy. There's more comedy in this man than any six presidents. Presidents usually have one thing about them. You know, Bush was dumb, we said, and Clinton was horny, and Chris Christie's overweight, whatever it is. This guy's everything. You know, he's horny, and he's a racist, and he's a criminal, and he's fat, and he's got crazy hair, and Stormy Daniel. It just never ends with this guy. So I'm not worried about the comedy. I'm worried about the country. And I, I don't, you know, the other depressing thing about this week was, you know, at, at his best moment, the Democrats are, they just look like the gang who can't shoot straight or can't run straight. And um, if, if they can't get their act together um, soon, it's, it's going to be over before it begins. I mean, he won last time with nothing, and now he's got money, and, you know, he's been president, and as I say, he's normalized to a lot of people. Um, I saw 44% of Democrats think Democrats are going to win. No, we can't. I, <laughs> one of the things that I was struck by, uh, I had Jared Kushner on uh, yes, last sir. week, and he said, don't forget, 2% of the people who disapproved of Mitt Romney voted for him. 15% of the people who disapproved of Donald Trump voted for him in 2016. Yeah. In other words, I think people are forgetting that there are a lot of people who do think that Trump as a character is, you know, does, does lots of vulgar things that they wouldn't, they wouldn't approve of. But yeah. when, the, when it's just, time to vote. That's just him. Yeah. You know, that's, uh, and he is authentic in that way. <laughs> you know... He's authentically an a-hole, you know, and, and people like, in, a, in an age that is absent facts and a lot of education, authenticity rules the day. That's why Bernie Sanders also right. does so well. He's authentic. People know that he, I think that's why he wound up ahead of Elizabeth Warren. We saw her for a long period of time, and she came off looking less authentic than he is. You know, there was a moment where, if you remember, uh, Justin Trudeau, the, the Canadian prime minister, was caught sort of making fun of Trump, and they asked Trump about it the next day. And Trump was completely honest in a sense of saying, yeah, I thought he was a two-faced, uh, yeah. you know. That, to me, yeah. gets at Trump's authenticity where he's not pretending to be pre He doesn't no. play president. He makes this point in his, uh, in his campaign rallies. I, I, am, I am the real thing. You're yeah. seeing the real yeah. thing. Yeah, he never makes a, a concession to what somebody else wants him to be. And 
I keep saying here that in an age when everything is completely binary, you're either red team or blue team, everything that a blue player does goes in the blue bin. And then everybody on the blue team has to answer for that. So Trump doesn't have to be popular. Listen to what he always says. You have no choice. That's his, you have to vote for me. Because he's saying, yeah, you may not like me. I may be crude and vulgar and horrible, but they're crazy. And there's a lot of stuff in that blue bin that is crazy. And, it, and people read it every week, just these things, these too far out left, wokey stuff. And, you know, Obama said, said it, just people are just looking for, don't do crazy stuff. Don't say crazy stuff. Because we all get tagged with it. And then they go, yeah, I, I don't like Trump, but he's right. I got to vote for him. They're nuts. All right. We're going to come back with Bill Maher. Um, when we come back, I'm going to ask him about the other side of the aisle, the Democrats. I love Pete. I love Mayor Pete. I do. If I had my druthers, I think I'd pick him because I think at, I, I wouldn't have said that at first because I, I just was going by the stats. I don't know his name. He's from a little town and he's 37. Are you kidding? More now of my interview with the comedian and satirist Bill Maher from his set in Television City in Hollywood. Now we're going to talk about the other side. If this was a good week for Trump, pretty bad week for the Democrats with Iowa? Yeah, but they're starting to get a little clarity in the field. I mean, <clears throat> I have always said if Biden is the one that's going to defeat Trump, I'm all in for Joe. But the more I see him... I, I, he, he doesn't look like quite the same Joe, and I worry. And I also have been saying that go into an, a general election, and trust me, the Republicans will make Joe Biden's Ukraine issue, which is minuscule compared to Trump's Ukraine corruption, they will make that the bigger issue. They did it in 2004 with John Kerry and George Bush. Somehow John Kerry was the one who was suspect in war, and George Bush, the draft dodger, was the war hero. But remember Swift Boat people for... Bush and all. Okay, so uh, I think that's a albatross around Biden's neck. And he also just doesn't perform well. He just doesn't. I, I guess some people it doesn't bother, but it, it's starting to bother me. He, he, I noticed at the debates, everybody else is trying to talk with over the moderator to get more time. This guy can't wait for the question to be over. Oh, I see the light. I'm not going <laughs> to. That's not a good sign. But what about the others then? Buttigieg? I love Pete. I love Mayor Pete. I do. If I had my druthers, I think I'd pick him because I think at, I, I wouldn't have said that at first because I, I just was going by the stats. I don't know his name. He's from a little town and he's 37. Are you kidding? But you know what? I always say case, case by case basis with age. And he's just wise beyond his years. And he, he's you know, obviously got the energy at that age. But he's just he, he's not too far left. I mean, obviously, he has some issues that, you know, people keep endlessly talking about. He's not catching on with the black voters, but it's still early. The way some of these articles write about it, he's not in the Klan, yeah. you know? <laughs> he, I don't think this is really a problem with this enlightened millennial gay guy. Give him a chance. Who to, is to the left of Obama on all his policy yeah, issues, right? Yeah, there's not a non-progressive yeah, on yeah. the Democratic side. They talk about anyone who's not Warner or Bernie like they're not progressive. They're all progressives. They're not just, those two are just way far left. But now, do you feel like you've adjusted? Because you used to always think of yourself as resolutely left-wing, right? I mean, when no. you I was never a Democrat. 
because I would always say, you know, I caucus with them, but then they'll go and do something I can't. I don't, like, I don't want to defend that. But then when Trump came along, I said, yes, that we, there's only two sides now, and I can't fool around. I'm with the Democrats, and certainly until we get rid of him. But I almost, almost always voted with the, with the Democrats. I didn't think they were great, but the Republicans just got worse and worse and worse. But left wing, yes, I guess. I don't, I don't even know what, I don't, I don't think people know what labels mean anymore. They're but you've all been critical of, of Bernie and, and Warren on some of them, or yeah. particularly on immigration, particularly on... Uh, yes, I, I think it's bad politics. And also, I'm not for that much socialism. I always say socialism, capitalism plus. <laughs> what we have, people forget, we already have a lot of socialism in this country, and I'm for most of it. You know, Medicare and Social Security and stuff like that. But a wealth tax? Can I say a word for the wealthy, please? Because I've been very poor. I've, <laughs> I woke up with roaches crawling across my face for a couple of years. So I don't feel bad about having money. And I can't remember the last year when I didn't pay over 50% to the government. I mean, California has insanely high state tax. So you add the right. 39 plus 13 or something. You're already over. So I'm already giving you over half. And what I've managed to save after you took over half, now you're going to come after that with a wealth tax? I, I think there are more better ways to get the money. We do have a horrible income inequality system. But, you know, yes, you can even threaten <laughs> a good liberal like me. And do you, do you worry that uh, the Democrats are not, not, are not hearing this? Because there is, you know, between Twitter and the primaries, the, you, all the energy is on, is on the left. But I worry that the place where you're going to win the election is in the center. Uh, that's what I have been saying. But, you know, I've been, I must admit, I've been a little all over the map myself. Because like any Democratic voter, I'm looking at the field and making judgments as it goes along. And I'm thinking out loud. And um, my mantra so far has been yes. And I, I think it's still correct that there is so much room in the center that Trump eventually will, I think, excite our base enough that if you just don't scare away too many people like they did with Brett Kavanaugh and maybe with impeachment. Impeachment, if you look at the poll numbers for Trump, didn't seem to hurt. Right. You know, I, I love Nancy Pelosi, but she always says he's wearing it for life. I don't think he cares about that. I think he's going to make it cool. You know, I was yeah, impeached. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a bad man, you know. And uh, so I, I just think if you offer an alternative, a place for people to go... I, I like Amy Klobuchar a lot. I know people think she's not the exciting candidate, but, you know, she's got woke cred in her genes because she's a woman. Democrats like that. Like Pete has woke cred just by being gay. But then the policies are centrist. I think that's a good combination because you have to unite those two parts of the Democratic Party. And do you think there's enough energy against Trump that it'll be easier to unite these two parts of the party? I think so. I, I mean, I can't. He's doing better than he has. But again, this was a very good week for him. I don't know if it'll stay there. And you can always count on him to do horrible things in the future. But, you know, as I always say to my friends who start going on and on about Trump, I, please, your life is no different. In fact, you're probably richer. So shut up until something actually happens. Now, I do think something is going to happen. I think this is the last year of normalcy. And then Katie barred the door. But right now, no, people are not suffering. Life is pretty much the same. He hasn't gotten us into a war. And some, by some miracle, he hasn't tanked the economy. But, you know, con men, they're good. Con men are good at conning. And people have this belief 
that America's on the rise, you know, you hear them talk and a lot of people fall for that. And yes, things are going to be better. And so a lot of it is a self-fulfilling prophecy. The stock market is always just very psychological, isn't it? I mean, they're nervous when something goes and he doesn't have anything but confidence. So maybe he'll blow through the whole first term without any economic problems. And then you're very hard to beat because people vote their pocketbook. On that note, Bill Maher. <laughs> Not a good week. But Pleasure to have you. We'll see. Thank you, Fareed. Next on GPS, just how bad is China's coronavirus crisis? And how successful have Beijing's efforts been to isolate and treat the disease? Now for our What in the World segment. Tens of thousands infected, hundreds dead, more than two dozen countries affected and counting. That is the damage inflicted so far by the deadly coronavirus that cropped up in China in December and shows no signs of dying down. The WHO has called it a global health emergency. Many international airlines have stopped flying to China and governments have chartered flights to evacuate their citizens from that country. But the most fascinating part of this story is the Chinese government marshalling its prodigious state machinery to enact what is believed to be the largest quarantine in human history. It centers around the city of Wuhan in Hubei province, where the virus first appeared and where the outbreak is centered. There, most businesses and schools are now closed, highways are nearly deserted, public transportation has shut down, and routes to the outside world are all but cut off. Wuhan has about 11 million residents, but you'd never guess that looking at the streets today. A mysterious disease began to come into public view in late December when a doctor messaged his friends that there was an infection in his hospital. The infection was believed to be tied to a seafood market. Wuhan authorities promptly shut down the market, but also called the doctor into the police station and reprimanded him for disrupting social order. The central government didn't take control until January 20th, when it ordered the quarantine. In the days that followed, gymnasiums and exhibition centers were turned into makeshift hospitals. Workers and police were deployed to take people's temperatures as they entered public places and opened shops. Workers sprayed down streets, hotels, even people with disinfectant. The scale of China's lockdown is impressive, but it was also delayed, which accounts in part for the widespread of the disease, the crowding of the hospitals and the numbers of deaths in Hubei, as the Chinese news outlet Tsai Xin reported. Between January 23rd and February 4th, the official death toll in Hubei province grew by a factor of 20. And included in the death toll now is that doctor who first blew the whistle on the disease. Faced with the hospital crowding, the government devised an only-in-China solution. It set out to build two new hospitals in Wuhan in under two weeks, deploying thousands of construction workers using prefabricated units. According to state media, both opened this week and each was staffed with more than a 1,000 military medical workers. The precautionary measures have spread beyond Wuhan. Almost 60 million people around the country are under lockdown. Many shops have shuttered in Beijing and Shanghai. Macau closed its casinos. The government has sent drones around the country to tell people to wear masks. The response has become a matter of patriotism. This week, an editorial in the People's Daily called for a people's war against the virus, entreating citizens to rally around the Communist Party's Central Committee and Xi Jinping. Now, this is an impressive response and could probably only happen in China. 
But that doesn't mean it's always the smartest strategy. Some of the more stringent restrictions stigmatize the ill and restrict personal liberties. According to Tsai Xin, early last month, Wuhan police, quote, punished, unquote, eight people, most of them doctors, for rumor mongering because they were actually just spreading news of the outbreak. Still, these are uncharted waters. We should all watch closely what is going on in China and learn from it. The world is more connected than ever before, and so we are likely to see more of these kinds of crises in the future. Next on GPS, the Trump administration's Middle East peace plan was hatched without any consultation with Palestinian officials. I will talk with the chief Palestinian negotiator about what he thinks of the plan. Late last month, the Trump administration released its long-awaited peace plan for the Middle East. Running 181 pages long, the Peace to Prosperity plan was subtitled A Vision to Improve the Lives of the Palestinian and Israeli People. Last week, I brought you the plan's mastermind and Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner. This week, I'm joined from the West Bank by Saeed Barakat, the chief negotiator for the Palestinians. Um, let me ask you, Saeed, what was your reaction to, uh, to hearing about this plan? Were you consulted in any way? Um, how, how did it come about from your point of view? To be honest with you, uh, me and my president watched it on CNN like you did, like the Nigerians, like the Argentinians, like the Alaskans, like all people. We saw President Trump and Mr. Netanyahu standing up, congratulating each other, praising each other, hearing Mr. Netanyahu saying this is perfect, this is historical. And I thought that a deal, the term deal, uh, comprised uh, an agreement between two sides. So here I am listening to Mr. President Trump, Mr. Netanyahu, specifying my future, the future of the Palestinians, my children and grandchildren, without even bothering to consult me. As a matter of fact, I found out that Mr. Kushner took my job and made himself the chief negotiator of Palestinians and then copied and pasted every single demand of Mr. Netanyahu and his colleagues and then wrapped the agreement. And he sent, actually, talking points to nation states all over asking them to say we appreciate the efforts exerted by President Trump, and then talking points uh, to all nations. And he used some, uh, some of them with you uh, when he spoke about the first time Palestinians are offered a map, the first time Palestinians offer a chance for prosperity, uh, a chance to, to be independent, a chance which is all distortions and lies. But let me ask you this. Uh, fundamentally, it does seem that the plan is premised on Palestinian weakness. The argument goes, I think, look, the Palestinians are now uh, Lilliputians in comparison to the Israelis. The Israeli economy is, what, 500 billion. Palestinian GDP is 12 billion. The Arabs are more eager to normalize relations with Israel than ever before, particularly Saudi Arabia and Egypt. And in these circumstances, this is the best deal you will get. Yeah, that's what I call dictation. You know, when you, when, you, when you combine arrogance and ignorance, you have political blindness. And political blindness is what's happening today and yesterday in the West Bank, where Israelis and Palestinians are being killed and wounded. The point is, I'm sitting in Jericho, two kilometers from the Jordan River, 
from my hometown, Jericho on the Jordan River to the Mediterranean, I, the Christian and Muslim Palestinian, am 50.9% of the population. Friedman and Netanyahu are 49.1% of the population. What are they going to do with me? Judaism to me, period, was never a threat, mm. is not a threat, will never be a threat. Judaism is one of God's great religions, like Christianity and Islam. These people are so determined that this conflict is a religious one. This conflict, I tell them, no, it's not a religious one. It's a political one. It's a national one. It's a territorial one. Kushner told you that he has the Arabs with him. He has the Europeans with him. He has the Islamic countries with him. We, I, was, I was personally with my president in, in Egypt last Saturday, uh, a week ago, and 22 Arab countries were present there. Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Egypt, Emirates, Bahrain, Qatar, Algeria, Morocco, all unanimously rejected the Trump deal and said we will not deal in any way with this sham deal. But they say all this, but none of them do anything. Uh, None of of these so-called allies of yours in the Arab world are willing to put any pressure. Uh, At the end of the day, you need the Israelis to to make this the the Palestinian state. So is your only option to then go for a one-state solution? Look, my option is two states. I, 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 may, I may be in the minority. I'm being criticized heavily uh, by sticking to the two-state solution. But I know in, in history that I read and, and teach and write and so on, that if we want to have a solution, we must have a negotiated solution between us and the Israelis. And if we don't help ourselves as Israelis and Palestinians, that means this will be translated in the blood of my children and their children. And nobody else will do it for us. So my president, Abu Mazen, will be uh, uh, on the 11th of February, Tuesday, in the Security Council, extending his hand to the international community to convene an international body, an international conference. We have a path. My president will present a vision for an international conference to relaunch negotiations where we live them on the basis of the two-state solution 67, ending the occupation, Arab peace initiative, void of violence. We can do it, and we will do it, and we have no other alternative but to live and let live. I want my grandchildren to live like your grandchildren. I want them to be the teachers, the musicians, the, the, the newsmakers, the soccer players, whatever. And I, I, my job is to save lives. And as a matter of fact, to save lives of Israelis and Palestinians. And the only way to do it is through direct negotiations, through two states, state of Palestine with the Jerusalem capital to live side by side in peace security with the state of Israel. This will happen. This will come. Mark my words that we have no alternative. But the difference between those people who are trying to put us off track by the so-called vision of peace, vision of annexation and dictation, will be how many Israelis and Palestinians will be killed till we go back to the negotiating table and achieve our end game of the two-state solution, which is the only solution. Saab Barakat, pleasure to have you on, sir. Thank you, Fred. Next on GPS, the world's youngest prime minister, Finland's Sanna Marin, her thoughts on women running the world when we come back. In 1907, Finland made history 
The election that year was the first time women not only voted, but won seats in parliament. Finland has since continued to break a lot of ground on gender equality. And in 2019, an extraordinary shakeup took place there. The government is now a coalition of five parties, all run by women. Four of the five women are 35 or younger. The prime minister is Sanna Marin, at 34, the world's youngest prime minister. She splashed onto the world stage, and I had the great fortune to talk to her on a panel about gender equality last month in Davos. Prime Minister, when you uh, became the head of uh, government, you became the youngest head of government in the world, um, what was more important, that you were the youngest uh, head of government in the world or that you were female and that you had such a young and uh, uh, cabinet which was dominated by women? Well, thank you very much for having me here. It's, it's a pleasure and very uh, interesting and, and very important topic that we're discussing today. Um, actually, I didn't focus on the media attention so much. Of course, it looks uh, different than that we are used to. But I hope that in the future it doesn't get as much attention because it should be uh, also seen as normal, that we have different generations, different uh, genders in power to making decisions because uh, if we look at the population, there are different genders, there are different uh, generations, so we need people from all backgrounds. But you said it looks different, but is it different to have, you know, a majority of your cabinet is women, so many young. Uh, is it, in fact, do you think there's something different about the nature of the conversations? You've probably been in rooms and committees which were dominated by men. Do you, do you think there's a different quality to the kind of conversation you have now in your cabinet? Well, we started our work uh, last summer when we formed the government and we changed the prime minister last December. So, of course, we do have the same program. We do have the same uh, visions and do, do have the same agenda that we uh, used to have. But, um, of course, uh, it's a different environment that we are used to. But uh, I'm not the first female prime minister in Finland. I'm the third. And we also had a female president when I was a young girl and, and growing up, so maybe it's not that a big a deal in Finland that we have five women in power and that we have five female prime minister. But of course it show, shows uh, and means something that uh, the media and the uh, global community is uh, talking about it. So maybe today it's something else, but hopefully in the future it's the new normal that we have people from all kinds of backgrounds uh, making the decisions in powerful places. What, what I'm trying to get at is there are many women who will say that a conversation that, is, that has more women uh, is less, for example, conflictual, that uh, women are, tend to be more wi willing to find a compromise or a solution that is more cooperative. Do you believe that's true, or do you think that is in its own way a kind of gender stereotyping and that actually you know, men and women are essentially, you know, that these dynamics are the same, no matter whether there are eight women and, and two men or eight men and two women. Well, I think if we have uh, uh, people from different backgrounds, different genders um, making the decisions, the decisions are better because different angles are uh, being pointed out and being 
used, so I think it's very important that you have different angles and different backgrounds uh, in the discussion and also in the decision-making process. I think it's, it's better for everybody. Not, not, it's not only better for women that we have women in charge. It's also better for the men. Actually, our uh, gender equality minister is a man in, in our government. So, so I think it's very good that we have different perspectives. We need everybody on board. It's benefiting everybody, so we need everybody on board. Prime Minister, uh, I, I want some advice from you. I think the U.S., in terms of percentage of women in its legislature, I think it ranks 75th in the world. Um, how do we get it up? Well, I think you need, uh, need to make many decisions. Uh, we have had for a long time in our law that, uh, for example, in municipalities, in cities, you have to have uh, at least 40% of uh, either men or women in, in the body. So you need uh, laws. I'm, I'm not sure about uh, U.S. legislation laws, if you yeah. have something like this, but you need laws and you need structures that leads the way to gen gender equality. It just, it just doesn't happen by itself. It just doesn't happen by itself. You need to work on it constantly. It's not somebody else's job. This is why I got into politics, because I realized that uh, things just don't happen by itself. I have to work. I have to uh, do it myself. All my uh, friends and, and people around me have to do it by themselves, and we need everybody in, in, involved and uh, making, uh, taking the steps forward that we will... Uh, eventually uh, have gender equality. We have lots of, lots of things to do also in Finland. But I'm not sure why is it so that United States representation is so low when it comes to women. I just don't know because uh, it's a developed country. So you have to ask the US citizens why they are picking men, not women. <laughs> My thanks to the Prime Minister for that conversation. Before we go, my book of the week is Soner Chaptai's Erdogan's Empire. This is the best book on Turkey today, well-written with good short sections on the country's past that then shed light on its present. Whatever one thinks of President Erdogan, he is the most important leader of Turkey since Kamal Ataturk, and his brand of conservative populist nationalism is trending worldwide. The phenomenon needs greater understanding, which makes this book especially worthwhile. Thanks to all of you for being part of my program this week. I will see you next week. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.